Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. It's uh, page 959 in the Pew Bible. An eye for an eye, retaliation. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Love your enemies, or love for enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Epey, and thank you to the prayer team for leading us in that prayer this morning. Go ahead and keep your Bibles out to uh, Matthew 5. And uh, thanks to Eric Campos, it's been fun having him around for the final semester of his, or final quarter of his senior high school year. Natick High School students can do a project, an internship, and so he chose to do one here at the church. And so uh, the project he told you about with the Haiti Orphanage uh, is a part of that internship project and an opportunity for all of us to kind of join in on that. So I'm excited about that. One of the uh, one of the best windows into understanding whose agenda we're truly promoting, uh, whose vision and whose kingdom that we're actually serving, is how we respond in the face of personal offense. How do we react when someone wrongs us? Uh, several years ago, I saw a film called To End All Wars. It's a true story about an allied prisoner of war camp where uh, among the 61,000 prisoners of war were conscripted to build a railroad across Thailand and Burma as the Japanese planned to invade India during the Second World War. Uh, this railway became known as the Railway of Death because so many prisoners were killed in its construction. And the film is based on the autobiography of one of the characters uh, named Ernest Gordon, a Scotsman. Uh, the film is not for young audiences. I'll just make that disclaimer right now. Uh, as Eric Metaxas says in his review, this movie is bloody, violent, and profound, uh, portraying a raw, full-throated Christianity. Uh, it gives a very honest and very troubling portrait of violence and evil, not just of the captors, but also of the captives in the camp. And it's within this camp, stripped of his rights, uh, stripped of his dignity, in the face of the most grievous personal offense one can imagine, that Gordon is forced to wrestle with the questions, quote, Who is my neighbor? 
What does it mean to love one's enemies? How many times shall I forgive my brother? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? These are the questions I faced in the prison camp, says Gordon. The answers changed my life forever. Well, those same questions are presented before us in this passage this morning. And though we praise God that the, uh, the direness of whatever conflict we tend to find ourselves in the face of, uh, it doesn't compare to the horrors of a war prison camp, we still find ourselves at times facing offense, facing uh, wrongs committed against us, uh, becoming the subject of gossip at school or, or, or being uh, criticized at work, finding ourselves rejected or betrayed, uh, taken advantage of, even physically harmed. How we respond to that personal offense goes a long way at exposing whose agenda and whose kingdom we're actually following. Will we demand justice and vindication in defense of our rights, the American way? Will we quickly draw up sides and decide our interaction with people based on who's for us and who's against us and treat them accordingly? Or will we follow the counterintuitive and very countercultural pattern of Jesus' kingdom and respond with mercy and love for all whom we encounter, even our enemies. Even our enemies. Let's pray and look at what this passage has to say this morning. Lord, just in having heard the scripture read a moment ago, or perhaps having read it in the past, our defense is already up, God. When we hear a call like that to, to love our enemies, our minds race to all of the reasons we have not to do that. And so God, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts this morning to set aside those roadblocks, to set aside all of the ways we, we want to not hear or follow you on a hard teaching like this. And let us instead hear your voice of grace and mercy this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been with us for, for a while now, you know we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew uh, since last December and have been in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 uh, the last few weeks. And in that passage, we've seen how what God had instructed his covenant people Israel uh, to be and to do through the law in the Old Testament so many years ago, he is now bringing to fulfillment through his eternal son, Jesus, and his kingdom, the kingdom that Christ is establishing. And it's a kingdom, as we've already seen, and we're going to see again and again, that does not look very much like other kingdoms. Uh, it's different from the kingdoms of this world. In fact, it's even pretty different from how the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were living though they claim to be serving God and following the very same law, their obedience to that law was very superficial. It was on the surface. And underneath it was their own self-glorifying agenda. Part of what Jesus has been doing in this uh, section here, Matthew 5, 21 through 48, uh, he's been exposing that hypocritical misuse of the law, not just in the Pharisees, but also in our hearts as well as we've been going through it. 
while at the same time showing us the true heart of the law, what kind of righteousness God's instruction was actually aiming for in the first place. Not a righteousness that, that hangs out at you know, what we do with our hands, but one that comes from a heart that's ultimately been changed by Jesus. A heart changed by the gospel. And so, so far Jesus has touched on the subjects of murder and anger. He's touched on the subjects of adultery and the holiness of marriage. Last week, we looked at oaths and the integrity of our speech. And each time, we've seen a pattern where he comes and addresses these things with the very authority of God himself. We've seen a pattern over and over. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, you can do this and and, and still say you're keeping God's law, but I say to you, it goes below the surface. And, And time and time again, You've heard it said, I say to you, which is not what we would expect if we were reading something from the prophets in the Old Testament. We would expect there, you've heard it said, but thus says the Lord. Jesus doesn't do that. You've heard it said, I say to you, I speak with the very authority of God's voice because I speak as God. What we're hearing and seeing in this passage is not just a new Moses, it's God himself clarifying and and giving his instruction for what life looks like in a kingdom following Jesus's authority. So what does he deal with in our passage this morning? Verses 38 to 48. Uh, Here we have the final two sayings in this little section here, the, the final two corrections. The first one is in 38 through 42. You've heard it said. And then a second one in 43 through 48, again beginning, you've heard it said. And both of them speak to how we respond when faced with personal conflict or offense. Verse 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. So how do we respond when others harm us or attempt evil against us? That's the subject. Then verse 43, You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's there's trouble, there's trial, there's conflict and offense happening here. There are enemies and, and, and those who want to persecute us. How do we respond and treat those whom we consider our enemies? Now, these verses have spurred a whole lot of conversation and debate about things like pacifism and, and the nonviolence at, at national and, govern, and local governmental levels, whether the state should force, uh, use force to restrain evil, and if so, whether Christians should participate in that. There's all sorts of books written about this passage and, and asking those questions. And those are, those are good, legitimate questions. And, and I do think the scripture weighs in on them, but I don't think these verses here help us solve them. Uh, because the context here is, pub, is, is personal offense rather than public policy. Uh, both of the Old Testament the passages that Jesus is citing, he's applying to a situation of personal offense. Someone is wronging you. And each example he gives to make sense of that are examples of personal offense. So occasions when we're deprived of our honor or of our stuff or of our time and energy or our money. So I think the question that we need to be asking in our hearts this morning is, how should members of God's kingdom, 
who, who submit to Jesus' authority as king, how do we respond to those who personally offend us, who personally harm us or take advantage of us? And Jesus has already warned that's going to be pretty common for those who follow him just earlier in the chapter. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. So how do we respond when that happens? And what does that tell us about whose kingdom we're serving? That's the other question. What does that tell us, our response, about whose kingdom we're really serving? So let's look at the the two ideas that Jesus is addressing. Uh, The first one is in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's the accepted saying. That's the saying the Pharisees were, were talking about. And it's a direct quote of the Old Testament. It's the famous lex talionis or law of retaliation. You find it three different places in the Old Testament, uh, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And in fact, you can find that principle in uh, legal codes that are as ancient as the Code of Hammurabi. This is an old, basic principle of justice. And it continues today, even as the foundation of many of our justice systems today. So when someone wrongs you, and you take them to court. The idea here is that if they are found guilty, whatever punishment the court decides should be equal to, but not exceeding the extent of the crime. Does that make sense? So, so if someone wounds you and you lose your eye, you cannot, you can take eye for eye, but you cannot take life for eye. That would be a violation of justice. The punishment cannot exceed the extent of the crime. So there's, there's a foundation for justice, but not only did it set that standard, it was also designed to restrain God's people from taking justice into their own hands. So, uh, you know, or to stop vengeance from spiraling out of control into an escalating cycle of revenge and family feuds. You think of the Hatfields and the McCoys or those kinds of situations where you insulted my brother, so I punched yours, so you killed mine, and so on, and it just keeps spiraling. This law was designed to restrain that kind of cycle uh, of progressing uh, vengeance. That's the first law Jesus is commenting on. The second one uh, comes from the same verse in the Old Testament that Jesus later refers to as the second greatest commandment. Uh, so, Matthew 5.43, you've heard it was said, this is what people are telling you, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But listen to the full verse in Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, notice two things here. First, the religious leaders added the second part to the command that they were going around teaching. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor as yourself. It says nothing about hating your enemy. So they had added that part to the saying. Perhaps they thought that was the logical conclusion of it. But as we're going to see this morning, they were dead wrong. Uh, Second, notice that the very purpose of this command as we, when we read the whole verse in context, Leviticus 19.18, the very purpose is almost identical to the purpose of the law of retaliation. 
to restrain revenge. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, so that revenge doesn't get out of control. First part of Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against your people. Restraining vengeance. Rather, instead of getting vengeance or getting even, love your neighbor as yourself. That was the intent of this law. And so both of the laws that Jesus uh, is addressing, that the Pharisees had been using, both were designed to restrain revengeance and retaliation in response to personal offenses between God's people. But, as with other examples uh, that we've seen so far, the Pharisees seem to have used those here, uh, used these laws to justify the very activity that they were designed to stop. So, instead of restraining revenge and promoting love, they used these laws to restrain love and promote self. That was the agenda. They made much of the law of retaliation when they stood to gain from it. You offended me, pay up. They made little of their enemies and others who were not like them. They showed partiality to their friends and animosity to their enemies. And frankly, that's pretty much our natural tendency, if you can speak of a a fallen heart in natural terms. Um, Our default in a world that is marked by this kind of opposition, this kind of offense, where we live in a world where people will hurt us and try to take advantage of us, our default reaction is twofold. First, we show kindness to those who are for us and who love us in return. We're okay with that. We're pretty good with that one. And then second, we seek revenge from any who would oppose us or get in our way. That's our default. I've used this illustration before, but I I think it kind of puts it in stark and not so charitable terms. Basically, we operate by playground rules. You know, as long as you keep your distance from the toy I'm playing on, we can share this space and be happy. Everyone gets along. But if you muscle in on the swing that I'm headed toward, watch out. Justice will be had. You know, uh, the one of the Twitter accounts I follow is called Honest Toddler. If you're on Twitter, you should follow it. Uh, and, and this Honest Toddler tells us, nobody wants to throw sand. These situations find you. <laughs> Park justice is swift but messy. Not for the infirm. You know, and, and that's how we roll. That's what we do in life. You, you muscle in, you oppose me, prepare to pay. As long as we're good, I'm good. Okay? That's how we respond to conflict. So how do you respond? What does your heart do when that happens? Do you go after justice, taking matters into your, your own hands? Do you respond so that those who have hurt you are going to now feel the same hurt they caused? I want them to feel the pain they caused me. Do you demand vindication to have your name cleared and and restitution to, to be repaid, compensated for what they've cost you? Do you stand on your rights when personally offended? In the film I mentioned earlier, To End All Wars, uh, this was the posture taken by one of the main characters in the story, uh, Major Ian Campbell. Campbell, uh, in outrage to the unjust conditions, in loyalty to his uh, slain 
commanding officer, he vows to seek justice. That's the word he uses throughout. In response to evil, Campbell says, I recommend defiance, justice for the captives, eye for an eye. That's what he wants. And through his influence, he then lays the groundwork for a bloody rebellion. That makes sense to us. Like, yeah, yeah, that's probably what I would do, too. That makes sense. I mean, it seems fair and right to treat those who've wronged us with the same kind of wrongs. It feels like justice. And it's the way this world works. Yet we look at this passage and we see that Jesus' kingdom is entirely different. It's different from this world and those who follow him as king respond to conflict in ways that are entirely different from this world. Not by demanding our rights and limiting our love, but with a self-giving love that's unlimited. That not, is not restricted only for those who love me in return. A love that displays the love of the Father that he's shown us through Christ. So look again at what Jesus says in verses 38 and 39. You've you've heard it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. What in the world does that mean? Why, Why would he... That's completely shocking. Why would he say such a thing like that? It's counter to everything we would expect. It's just as counterintuitive as what he says in verses 43 and 44. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why in the world would anybody do that? What good is that going to bring to this unjust situation? And what would it even look like? Well, verses 39 to 42, excuse me, Jesus gives us four examples of what it looks like. Uh, four examples to help us understand what he means by not resisting an evil person. In short, he calls his followers not to respond to personal offense by protecting and demanding our rights, but with a self-giving love that demonstrates the gospel of Jesus. That's how he calls us to respond. So let's look at those examples. The first one's in verse 39. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Uh, this is one of the most famous lines from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, turn the other cheek. And here the offense has to do more with insult than injury. Um, I mean, of course it hurts to get slapped in the cheek, but the picture here of being struck in the right cheek is almost certainly a, a backhanded slap, which in you know, that culture and several cultures today is a pretty significant insult. Uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's humiliating. And in fact, it was something under Jewish law for which someone could seek damages for, that kind of insult publicly. Not unlike we might seek damages for libel or slander today. So, when you're insulted in a derogatory way, how should you respond? Your coworker calls out your mistake in the staff meeting for everyone to shake their head at. Even though you know they made a worse mistake two weeks earlier. What do you do? 
Your classmate starts a rumor about you that's actually true about them. Your competitor criticizes and humiliates you in public. What do you do? You know, that kind of slap hurts the pride more than the face. What do you do? Do you take them to court and sue them for everything they're worth? That's what we want to do. Do you strike them back and bring upon them the shame they caused you? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Take another insult. Lay down your rights and absorb the insult. Love them. Love them at great expense to yourself so that they might see the love of Jesus. Second examples in verse 40. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In the first example, someone tried to to steal your honor. Now they're trying to take your stuff. And and you could demand your rights. In in fact, there's no way they can even legally sue you for for your cloak in uh, according to Old Testament law. So, So you could stand on those rights, but Jesus says lay them down. Don't just give them your tunic. Give them your cloak also. Love them at great personal cost to self. And that the the instruction to give the cloak is pretty significant here. Uh, again, it was it was literally protected by Jewish law in Exodus 22. So Sinclair Ferguson explains, if a if a cloak were taken in a financial pledge, I, I need to borrow this cow. Well, what are you going to give me in return until you return it? Here's my cloak. If it were taken, you know, as a token of a financial pledge, it had to be returned before nightfall because for some, it not. It served not just as body clothing, but as bed clothing. That was their only sheet at night, and so you had to return it. But again, Jesus' point is that when his followers meet with opposition and persecution, they should not stand on their legal rights. Instead, where the sin of others abounds, grace in them should abound much more. Hmm. Grace in us should abound much more. I don't know. Third example, verse 41. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Go with him too. Uh, in the first century, Judea was occupied territory. So there were Roman uh, soldiers uh, around, and, and they were permitted by law to conscript, excuse me, conscript uh, others to, to take them into service so that they could carry their baggage or other stuff up to but not exceeding 1,000 steps, about a mile. Similar to what we see happen to Simon of Cyrene. Jesus is carrying his cross and they grab him and say, you have to carry it now. Uh, and though, you know, it, it's insulting to be treated like a slave for people to, to steal your time and your energy and, and you want to get revenge for that, there's no legal recourse in, in that context. But Jesus says, if they make you go one mile, surprise them and go a second. Go the second mile, as we say. Love them at great personal cost. Not because they deserve it, but because that's how Jesus loves us. Fourth example is in verse 42. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
Now, there doesn't seem to be any sort of coercion in this example. It's not like somebody's forcing you into a loan or something like that. They're asking you for a gift or for a loan. And yet, to do that will deprive you of money that you could otherwise spend on yourself if you do that. Money that you own and have a right to spend however you want because you own it. How do you respond to such a request? Do you hold tightly to what belongs to you so that your plans and dreams can become a reality? Jesus says give. Love others at great personal cost. At great personal cost. Lay down your claim to your own kingdom. Lay down your life so that others might see the love of Jesus. You can sum up these four examples in what Jesus says in verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Rather than getting even, lay down your rights, love them at great cost to self, pointing them to the kingdom of Jesus to whom you belong and to whom you owe your ultimate allegiance. Now, it's very easy to love people who love us back. I think we all know that. Uh, to be kind to those who, who are for you or who are like you. It's so easy that Jesus says in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors, those known for extortion, uh, and, and who are kind of public enemies and, and betrayers of the Jews, even they do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans, the, the Gentiles, do that. You know, to put it maybe in, in today's categories, even the most violent street gang looks after its own. What credit do you get for loving people who love you back? Jesus' kingdom calls us to something more. A love that reflects the impartial love of the Father. Verses 44 to 45. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And when Jesus talks about being a son of your father here, he's talking about looking like the father, being known for what the father's known for, a family resemblance. So God does not restrict his love only to those children who obey him or love him in return. In his compassion, he provides for all his creation. And so he calls us to a love that, that not only lays down our rights for someone we like or might pay us back, but to give sacrificially and love those, even those who seek to hurt us, who take advantage of us, who insult us and shame us. It is a love that's unlimited in its scope. It's impartial. It's freely given to all, regardless of what they give in return. Again, this is just not how our brains and minds work, or our hearts. How, how is that? What is it that makes that kind of love possible? It's not how we, we operate. It doesn't come naturally. I'm not even sure I like what I'm reading here. Um, 
And the reality is this kind of love is impossible left to ourselves. Absolutely impossible. This kind of self-giving love that has no limit only comes when we recognize and receive the self-giving love God has for us in Jesus. And are then willing to trust, entrust justice to Him and leave the results of that in His hands. The film, again, To End All Wars, highlights another character. His name is Dusty. And he's set in contrast to Major Campbell, who sought justice in an eye for an eye. Dusty is a British prisoner of war. Again, this is a true story. Um, he, he's decidedly Christian. He, the, the, prisoner, uh, the prisoner guards allowed him to build a small outdoor chapel just outside the gates. They trusted him that much. Uh, his character is a portrait of meekness in the film. So while Campbell uses his influence to plot a bloody rebellion, Dusty uses his influence to teach and to demonstrate the self-giving love of the gospel, such that the prisoners, including Gordon, who, who, who writes this memoir, despite being forced under horrific conditions to build this railway, they choose to intentionally love their enemies and work so hard for their benefit that they finish it six months ahead of schedule. The Japanese had no concept for that, the guards there. They didn't get that. Where does that kind of love come from? At one point, Gordon asks Dusty this question. Why are you here? You don't fit. And he tells him a story. How before the war, he got into a fight at a pub and he paralyzed a man. And the man refused to press charges. He just forgave him. And Dusty couldn't figure out why. And then he told him. He had been forgiven a debt in his past. And he wanted to do the same for Dusty. He gave him his Bible and told him his punishment was to read it. Some punishment, says Dusty. When we come to realize the extent to which God has loved us while we were enemies, as Romans puts it. When we look into the face of our enemies and see ourselves, our own selfish rebellion against God, and realize and receive the mercy that He's had on us in the cross, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that is when we are free to love others with the very grace that God has loved us with. To love our enemies, to go the second mile. Again, Sinclair Ferguson summarizes, Jesus' point is clear. The Christian does the unexpected. Because grace makes him or her seek to win others by love rather than retaliate on the basis of rights. We want to, God, the, the grace we've experienced in the gospel makes us want to win others by loving them rather than claim our own and retaliate on the basis of rights. We respond to personal conflict not with an outrage and a how dare you thwart my kingdom but with a humility and love that follows the pattern of Christ and that trusts God in heaven to sort out the justice.
God will sort that out. And Jesus isn't asking his followers to do anything that he himself did not do. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25 with me. You can flip there. They'll also be up behind me. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What's that look like? He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He's absolutely innocent in a way that none of us can claim. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He put justice in his father's hands. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For we were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We have been loved with a self-giving love that has no limit. It was given even when we didn't deserve it. That is the love of our Heavenly Father that He demonstrated through Christ. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, If that's true, be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now again, that sounds crazy because we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. Uh, We're not going to arrive in this life, not until the Lord returns and completely removes sin from this world and remakes his new creation. But we can, as we grow and receive the love of Christ, reflect in increasing measures the perfect love of God to others. The complete love of God that does not make distinction between enemy and friend. Again, Sinclair Ferguson explains, the mark of perfection in the Christian is just this. His love is not determined by the loveliness or the attractiveness he finds in its object. His love is not conditional upon his being loved first. His love is not directed only toward those whose love he can rely on in return. No, his love is controlled by the knowledge that when he was God's enemy and a sinner, the Father first loved him. If he's to show the Father's love, the family love, then he will go and do likewise. We will show the love of Christ to those who wrong us and hurt us, even if they don't deserve it. How do you respond to personal offense? And what does your response say about whose kingdom you're serving? What is the price of being vindicated? Of being right? Of winning that argument? Winning that lawsuit? Here's a simple question. Who gains from this? Who gains from this? Me or Jesus? Now, those two things are not always opposed to each other. But if I stand to gain, 
and Jesus and his gospel stand to lose, the course is clear, though it may cost you everything. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Following Jesus as king means responding to that personal offense with a self-giving love that has no limit and that shows the world the love of Christ that we ourselves have received. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I can think of no more impossible passage in Scripture than this. Lord, I'm shamed by the very inclinations of my heart, the reactions of my heart when I read these words. And what that tells me, Lord, is that I really don't take my sin serious enough. And I really don't take your holiness serious enough because I really don't believe I've offended you that much. And therefore, I really don't get how great and incredible and amazing your love is. So God, show me, show us the true color of our sin as it's held up against the brilliance of your holiness. But don't leave us there. Show us the incomparable beauty and sufficiency of your grace poured out for us on the cross. And may that love overwhelm our hearts such that that we can't even think about why somebody would seek to retaliate when this is so much better, so much truer to trust you to work out the justice and to give ourselves in love. Lord, may that become our default. May you change our hearts that much that that's the way we think and live and treat others. And may, uh, through that love, may you show the world what you're like. Before Jesus went into these uh, corrections, Lord, he reminded us, he told us we are the light of the world. May our transformed lives shine forth the beauty of your grace and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.